You may not have ever realized it, but one of the things the King James Version of the Bible did was create a lot of what we think of as uh, modern English, and certainly there's a lot of phrases from the King James Bible that entered into the English language, and one of them is this notion of the widow's might. That is a King James saying, if there ever was one. Uh, no one ever talks about mites. But this is that famous story of the widow's might. And we intuitively know this story should be a big deal. Right? I mean, I just, every time I read it, I feel like there's, there's something going on here. This is a big deal. But other than hearing about it during fundraising campaigns, <laughs> and we're not really sure what to do with it, I think. It just feels over the top. I mean, am I right? Like, I can't put everything I have in the offering basket when it comes around here in a minute, even if Jesus was sitting there watching. I got bills to pay, Lord. Sorry. <laughs> Like, I got a mortgage and a car payment and car insurance and, you know, uh, right? It just, it feels over the top. It doesn't feel like something we could actually deal with. So I want us to stop and think this morning, all right, Mark, why are you telling us this story? Why is it important to you as an evangelist who are trying to help us to follow Jesus? What, like, what are you trying to do to us, Mark? Like, what's this, what's this text call for? And, you know, we can't obviously know for sure, but if we just think of it in terms of the way Mark's gospel is unfolding, that is to say, just like as a piece of literature, well, this story falls after what Jen Cho was teaching us last week about the great commandment. And perhaps what Mark means to say to us is this is kind of an example of what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as ourself. And so as I sat with this text this week, I began to be reminded of how often it is that women lead the way in Christian spirituality in the New Testament. You know, for many of us, it was maybe a mother who you look to as like a model of Christian spirituality, maybe a grandmother, maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe it's somebody more famous like a Mother Teresa or a Corey Ten Boom or a... Joni Erickson Tata, maybe somebody like that. But people like that are just the women like that are just the visible tip of a huge mountain of incredibly faithful, powerful, selfless women. In fact, I sometimes think if you look up the word selfless in the dictionary, you're likely to see a picture of a woman. Not that men can't be selfless. Of course they can. But there's something kind of legendary about the selflessness of women, and it's not just selfless. Um, women throughout the scriptures are intelligent and talented and skilled. They're visionaries and spiritual masters. Women are often, as I said, legendary models of deep devotion. We can begin with Mary, the mother of God, um, who will spend four weeks this week in Advent thinking about Mary and her devotion. Or I thought this, week's of, this week of Acts 13, where Luke says that the church was full of devout and honorable women. Or you think about the woman with the alabaster jar, or think that women were last at the cross and first at the tomb. I mean, we could go on. So then let's take a moment and get out your text, if you would, and, and let's look at it this morning and kind of wonder together, okay, Mark, what do you want us to emulate about this particular woman? So the story begins with, Jim, with Jesus in the court of the women, He's sitting down opposite what the text calls here the treasury. And so picture um, 
you know, maybe a big, huge Mediterranean courtyard or something with these, uh, there would have been 13, we're told, kind of golden receptacles for the offerings. And Jesus is sitting down and he's just watching as people are putting money into the offering baskets. And along comes this poor widow. Now, a poor widow, for anybody reading this uh, of around Mark's time, would have known that this is a classic New Testament example of someone who's overlooked and excluded. That in her society, a widow would have typically had very few rights and even fewer options in life. Now, again, we, we don't read everything, and so we didn't read a few verses uh, before our reading this morning. But again, if we just think about this, how this is unfolding for Mark as a piece of literature, well, just before our reading this morning in verses 38 through 40, Jesus talks about scribes who, quote, devour widows' houses. So these are religious leaders who are manipulating and using women, widows, and Jesus says of them that they are going to receive a very severe condemnation. So the picture we're meant to see here is this widow is perhaps one of these widows who's been devoured and who's been made powerless and poor by the scribes. So this is a woman you might think of in our modern language is like super hurt by the church, like a done, a nun, like I'm done. Uh, in fact, a part of me being powerless is because of the church, these scribes, perhaps, and I'm done with it. But it is just so mind-blowing to me that here she is precisely at church, giving what the text says is her all. And I think what maybe Mark is doing here is that he's contrasting sort of the bad religion, you might say, of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees with the kind of devotion that's possible in the kingdom. And so I think he's giving us a contrast here. You've got to remember, he's an evangelist. And he's kind of showing us there's a couple of different ways we can go with everything Jesus has been saying. So Jesus notes that she comes, you see your text, she puts in these two uh, small copper co coins as the ESV has it. So these would have been the smallest coins and kind of like our pennies these days, worth very little. But I think what Mark's showing us here is it's, it's, it's not that the money was unimportant to this widow, it's the exact opposite. It's not that she's being careless and just throwing in her last two little kind of worthless coins. No, like us, her physical sustenance would have depended on her income. She would have had the equivalent of rent to pay, a grocery bill, medical prescriptions, utilities, bus fare. So she wasn't being careless about her money or she wasn't being like so otherworldly that you know, none of this mattered. It wasn't that the money meant nothing to her. On the contrary, what Mark wants to see is that this widow thoughtfully and concretely gave away something that was actually very valuable. So then if you look at your text, it's seeing this, that is to say, seeing what this widow had just done, Jesus called his disciples to him. Now, I'm probably reading into the text something a little bit allegorical here. This could have just been a basic practical, hey guys, come here. But we could read into it for our sake, that. Hey guys, come here. I have something I want to teach you. Come follow me. 
I, so something just happened here that I think has really great significance in what it is to follow God and to find our life in his kingdom. So come follow, or so, so come to me. And then he says to them, truly I say to you, and again, that's a, that's a construction that Mark and the other synoptics use where they have Jesus saying like, verily, verily, I think the King James had it, or truly I say to you. This is kind of like, hey, you know, waving some flags here. Hey, what I'm about to say to you is important. This is what's important. The poor widow has put more than all the others, or has put in more than all the others contributing to the offering. And then you have this really wonderful logical connective, for. For they all contributed out of their abundance. Or as Peterson has it in the message, they gave out of what they'll never miss. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Or again, as the message has it, she gave what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. And again, as I sat with this, I just thought, this is stunning. I, this is something beyond inspirational. I, I do think that perhaps Mark put this here to show us this is what it means to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, body, and will. And I think what most people who have commented on this passage in more devotional sorts of ways would say that the defining aspect of this widow is not her open purse, but her open heart. That's what's so stunning. That she held nothing back. Tim Keller commenting on this passage said that, you know, money is just one of the many uh, currencies of generosity. There's, there is the giving of our time, our attention, our personal space, our love. And then, as you know, throughout the New Testament, money's not just a term for pieces of what we think of green printed paper, right? Throughout the New Testament, it represents things like power. And for us, it represents things maybe like autonomy. Money's the way some people keep score. For some people, it's their source of identity. For other people, it's a source of their security. And this is why I say it's not just the widow's purse. It's the glimpse we get into her heart. And as I read it and, and pondered it, I thought, you know what? This is a woman who's come to grips with the parable of the pearl of great price. She's come to grips with the parable of the treasure buried in the field. For her, the kingdom actually is everything. It is the pearl of greatest price. It is my treasure. And so what we're seeing in her is just sort of a simple alignment with that. That as the text says, she gave her all. Well, Dallas Willard commenting on this passage says, viewed in the context of sort of the merely human or the material, Words like she gave her all can only just be pretty words. In fact, this whole passage can just be sort of pretty. Like, like I said when we started, like, what the heck do we do with this? It's just sort of a pretty story. But that, in fact, is true of nearly everything Jesus said. Virtually everything he said could be taken as just pretty words or religious rhetoric. Unless we see that when Jesus taught, he was teaching in full view of the heavens opened. You know, like, like think of the, the passage in Acts where Stephen's being stoned. And as he, I just always picture as he's being stoned and maybe his knees hit the ground and one shoulder hits the ground. And these stones are raining down upon him and he looks up into heaven and he sees a window opened into reality. That's what makes these not pretty words. 
is that they actually do correspond to a deep and important reality. It's just that when we only see them in sort of human or materialistic terms, then they, again, they just kind of seem like pretty words. So the difficulty is that most of us don't see the world that Jesus saw. And this is what makes it so hard for most of us to not simply dismiss his teachings as unrealistic. Because like kind of based on the reality we know, they are unrealistic, which then raises the question, how do we shift our reality? And this is what's core to spiritual formation into Christ-likeness. Core to that is shifting what we believe to be real. So again, what's Mark trying to get us to see? What's he trying to get us to do? You know, people don't write things for nothing. Trust me. I don't write things for nothing. And it's never enough to just say, what's a text say? What's a text mean? That's important. But I think it's equally important to wonder, what's this text meant to do? Like, when I write something, I am almost always mean it to do something to the reader. So what is Mark wanting this to do to us? As he shows us this generous devotion of the widow, maybe he means to say to us, that she saw Jesus' world. And this is a pivotal point, again, in terms of just literature, this is a pivotal point in the book of Mark. In a sense, this is Jesus' last kind of public act. And as Dennis will help us to see next week, there's a dramatic pivot in Mark 13 to where Mark then kind of takes this Jesus story and starts putting it in its world-historic, cosmic you know, sort of setting and what this means and where's this story going. So this is a pivotal point in in Mark's argument, you might say. And maybe what he means to say to us is, hey, this kind of sums up everything I've been trying to say to you. That Jesus is stunning and amazing and the world and reality that he lived out of is open to you. And you can find your life in the kingdom. You can derive your life in this hidden reality of the rule and reign of God that we don't see often with, you know, the news in front of our face. But that glimpse that Stephen had or the prophet seeing chariots of fire, you know, as the heavens were opened, that reality is always there and Jesus is saying is available to us for our actual, in our actual life. And maybe Mark's just saying, now this is kind of what it looks like. Maybe Mark the evangelist is saying something like, okay, so now you've seen the vision of life in the kingdom as Jesus embodied it in his way of being, as he taught it in things like parables and other more, you know, just straight on teaching, as he demonstrated it in his deeds of power, you've seen all this. Now maybe Mark is saying, do you intend to follow him with the kind of total commitment that you see in this woman? her absolute surrender, her full trust, you might say she was venturing it all on the kingdom. Like she'd made the decision about the pearl and the treasure, and she was venturing it all with her, uh, again, as we read last week, with her heart, soul, mind, and will. So part of what I take away for myself from this passage is that it shows me that it's abandonment to God which is the fruitful way to experience good under God. And it means relinquishing our way. It means not being angry or resentful when things don't go my way. 
It means that in God's hands, we're content for him to take charge of outcomes, to take charge of the people we love. That is so hard. Anybody raising or has raised kids knows what I'm talking about. Or maybe you have a sibling who's a drug addict. It is so hard to, it is so easy, this is so much easier said than done than to actually abandon these outcomes to God. But as we do so, it's precisely that posture of abandonment. Try, I, I, try to feel this with me. It's like, it's that posture of abandonment where we take out the anxious anxieties that so often fill our bodies. We let that go, and that creates an emptiness in us. Just follow me here. It's just an analogy. An emptiness in which that's the space then that God comes to occupy with us. As we let that go, it, it, it creates a space and a way in which God can occupy our lives and then begin to achieve what is best in, for us and for others far beyond anything we can even imagine. And here I always see that Jesus' easy yoke, as he put it, is the secret to peace. Now, keeping it real as I would always want to do, Again, as I sat with this text this week, just because it's real in my life, I just realized this actually is easier said than done. And that the journey of aligning our life to this never stops. And I sat at my desk and I pictured Debbie and I leaving Orange County at 23 years old, moving all the way across the country. We didn't know a person. We arrived in this city near Pittsburgh, Wheeling, West Virginia, we did not know one person. And if I can remember, which has been so long ago, maybe I don't, but I think we had like 60 bucks in our pocket. And we just sort of dove in with kind of a crazy, reckless abandonment. You know, we didn't have anything to care about but each other and God. We didn't have any kids. We didn't care what we drove or what we ate or what we wore. Our whole life was in front of us. I was 23 years old. And it was just this wonderful, crazy, reckless adventure. But it required some of this sort of trust. But as I sat at my desk this week at 62, and thinking, well, I'm in pretty good health. Maybe I can work another eight or 10 years, and then I'll be 72. And what will that be like? And all of a sudden, I realized that ending well is not axiomatic. And that there is a different sort of challenge about ending well. There's a, there are challenges in our 20s that challenge this sort of widow's might faith. But I'm discovering, even after 40 years of utter devotion to Christ, utter devotion for 40 years, I'm noticing that these next 8 or 10 or 15 years are likely to have their own set of challenges. Their own way of testing, can I abandon this last decade, can I abandon those outcomes to God? Because now everything seems so short, right? Like, what the heck, man? All of a sudden, these next eight or 10 years seem really important. Like, I, I don't want to screw this up. What if I screw this up, right? And this is just the journey of Christian spirituality. This is the journey of transformation into Christ-likeness. It just feels different in our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and our 50s. And I just want to tell you, for those who aren't yet there yet, and the ones who are there are already going, that's right, Hunter, I'm feeling you. Um, 
But for those of you who aren't there yet, it's just different. And the challenges are different. And abandoning ourselves to it is, it is just the easy yoke. It's, it's the way it is. I, I'm almost done here. I, as I was thinking about this, I thought of that passage I love at the very end of the Gospel of John, where Peter's, you know, she's, she's still not getting it right. And he's kind of griping at Jesus about, well, you know, what about John? And remember, and Jesus says to him, Peter, when you get old, sort of you've had your way, sort of, I'm paraphrasing. But when you get old, somebody else is going to take you by the hands and they're going to lead you where you don't want to go. And that so often happens with older people. Your friends start dying. You get a disease. Your parents are all dead. And you feel like life is just leading you in this place that you've no longer got any control over. When I was 23, I didn't care. I only had 60 bucks in my pocket. I'll go find a job. And I did. What did I, I, I taught at a business college. I, I was a DJ. I never told you this, did I? I was a DJ. I did the morning air shift at a local radio station. I sold pianos and organs in a mall. I did just anything to make money. I was a kid. I didn't care. But now all of a sudden it seems important. Retirement. How are we going to live? What about medical costs going up? This is what's real. But look at me. You know what's more real? What Stephen saw as he was dying and peered up into heaven. And that is the reality that makes sense of this reality. And I think Marx wants to say, that woman got it. And she just stands as this towering figure in Christian history. Because somehow she saw the world that Jesus saw and was able to abandon herself to it. Amen.